like uh, to ask for your attention again for some further clarifications about our exercise. I think it's worth discerning different aspects of uh, the things we are attempting to practice. For meditators it is necessary that you are uh, learning to think clearly about what you're doing. While thinking will not get you there, uh, thinking considerably helps. Stay, staying out of rehearsing possibly unhelpful habits and gaining clarity in um, both the specificity of our task. People call meditation all kinds of things. We can do all kinds of things under the name of meditation. Sometimes we relate to ourselves in ways that are not acknowledged as meditation practitioners. As I have indicated, sati, mindfulness, if you want it in a nutshell, it's it's a form of attuned relationship. It's a willingness, an availability, and a capacity to continually relate to something. Now that's easy said. It's when we actually start doing this, we notice that there are distinct tones that creep into this relationship which may not be acknowledged. Judgmentalness, control, um, harshness, um, suspicion. All this may be part of our relationship. Now if you sit hour and hour practicing some form of meditation and tacitly rehearsing these types of states, you know, no wonder meditation does not make you happy. So it is important that you learn to detect such tones that creep into your relationship or that um, just to happen, happen to be there. So that we do not affirm these tones. That is why mindfulness alone actually doesn't really help, to be honest with you. Nowhere in Buddhist teaching it says mindfulness makes you free. Nowhere in Buddhist teaching it says mindfulness takes you out of anger. That's one of the uh, surprises, maybe, for folks from the mindfulness world. Um, mindfulness is crucial in Buddhist psychology and in Buddhist meditation, but it's not doing the job on its own. Yeah. That's, mindfulness needs friends and allies. So Some of those friends are called effort. Some of those friends are called kindness. Some of those friends are called equanimity. Some of those friends are called clear comprehension. Some of those friends are called uh, dedication. Now, in my ideal world, you'd, you'd all start at zero, and I would just give you clean meditative instructions. But I am very aware that you are not starting at zero. You secretly know something about meditation, quite a bit. Even if you come here completely fresh, you will have your own notions of meditation. You will already have suspicions of what you are lacking, what you need to learn and what it is all about. And what I say is only going to marginally influence that. 
for a, if I'm lucky for a little while. Secretly, you will already know what I'm going to say, and you will specifically hear the things you either want to hear or you precisely are afraid I would go, I was going to say. So we're not actually starting at zero, and much of our meditation practice of learning how to meditate is to gradually come to terms with what am I already doing, what is already happening in that mind at any moment. Now just to, you know, learn a technique and basically not look at what I'm already doing is not going to do the job. You are very likely to pick up of so-called meditation exercises or teaching the things you are already too familiar with and you will not hear the things that are frightening or inconceivable or simply off your map. You will not hear those things. And instead, rehearsing things you already know, you already do, and then blame Buddhism, the Buddha, meditation, Akinjano, Jaya, Gaya House for, for not delivering. Yeah. I'm personally not very afraid that you're going to sue me or so, though <laughs> it may happen. But uh, I am concerned as a, as a long-term <coughs> meditator with people who are dedicated to this practice, who make time and energy and give their hearts to this, that we stop being naive. We stop being naive in the name of mindfulness or in the name of meditation or in the name of effort or in the name of, uh, you know, open awareness or something like that, whatever you call it. It's necessary that we investigate and take stock of the processes that are already occurring in our mind. It's necessary that we do that in a variety of dimensions. One of these dimensions is affective. How do I relate to the process of my own experience? Am I my friend in there? Or am I my judge? Am I the guy who is in control? Am I sitting in the flight deck continually? having to make sure that this thing goes where it needs to go? Um, or am I just, you know, a kind of a continual passenger who, who seems to be victimized by, by where the thing is flying without me, yeah, without my say in it? Um, so we, we will have probably patterns and roles, and quite distinct ones. We arrive here, you know, this almost 50 worlds bundled into this room and we will all, after sitting a few hours apparently doing the same exercise and eating the same food following the same schedule find ourselves in very distinct worlds and it is necessary that you find out what world you inhabit with yourself that you learn to identify some of its features that you stop being naive and just wait it stops when it's unpleasant that it continues when it's pleasant. That uh, if you try it harder, it would become the good one. Yeah. So that we come out of this childlike patterns and actually start to identify some of the strength we bring to this practice and some of the hang-ups we bring to this as well. And then hopefully, you know, strengthen the strength and gradually wean ourselves off the hang-ups and uh, grow together. So, the... only way I found personally effective is that I actually learned to discern what's going on, different facets of it. I learned to discern, you know, as I learned to discern posture, I learned to discern mood, 
you know, what mood states, what, what is the weather inside, is this grumpy, is this bright, is this dark, is this, is this joyous, is this um, dissociated, is this distracted, is this doubtful, yeah? that I learn to actually have some vocabulary for the inner climate I meet when I turn the light back inwards. What do I find in there? Rather than simply immersing myself in there, possibly marinating in stuff that is uh, either distracting or not very helpful or corroborating my worst suspicions, that I actually learn to say, oh, this feels like... (laughs) And I'm not speaking of thinking or analysis, or I'm not speaking of yet another story, but I'm just speaking of this is happening. This is a degree of brightness. This is a degree of stability. This is a degree of disquiet. This is a degree of joy. This is a degree of uh, anxiety or strength or, uh, you know, whatever you find in there. That's necessary. As much as you are acknowledging degrees of tension, relaxedness, warmth, stability in your body, you learn to touch into the climate of your mind. In, a, in the ideal world, I wouldn't talk to you about this. You know, we would have three months and we would just do a couple of days, samatha exercises, stability, anchoring your attentional focus on a chosen object and learn to stabilize that. But this is not an ideal world. It's Easter Saturday and you'll be going home on Monday. So it's important that you acknowledge there are many dimensions to meditation. Some of those dimensions will come easily to you. You will find attracted to those, you will gravitate to those. They make immediate sense and some of them will not. I find it's necessary that you learn to identify what the terrain is you are actually visiting when you sit down with yourself. That you learn to switch channels. <clears throat> One very simple pattern is the pattern of the four Satipatthanas. A very simplified way of thinking of those Satipatthanas is of four TV channels. Yeah. Like TV, all these Satipatthanas are always on broadcast. They happen concurrently. Part of your experience is somatic, Part of your experience is hedonic, it's about pleasure and displeasure. Part of your experience is affective, it's about mood and impulse. And part of your experience is cognitive, it's about thought and concept and image. This is not the Satipatthana exercise, this is just the raw material for the Satipatthana exercise. But it makes sense to just look at your experience in those four dimensions. Like you have learned to um, tune into different sense channels, We've done this yesterday, you know, what's happening in this channel of seeing, what's happening in the channel of taste, touch, channel of uh, uh, smell, the channel of hearing, yeah? We can can do a satipatthana check, you know, what's happening in my somatic channel? What is this body experiencing right now? What's happening in my pleasure, displeasure, in my hedonic channel? How, How much do I like being here right now? Does the body like what it feels? Does the mind like what it experiences? To 
do the sounds register as pleasant or as unpleasant? Is the tingling in my fingers a pleasant or an unpleasant tingling? Yeah? Is my response in the mind to that tingling a pleasant or an unpleasant one? I can hone my attention to tune into these different channels. What is the mood the chitta experiences right now? The texts speak of contraction, expansion, of collectedness, of lack of collectedness, of being affected by forms of desire, forms of delusion, forms of uh, aversion. And we can add to that any mood, any flavor. That's an interesting thing to just acknowledge. This is where I live. When I ter- close my eyes, when I turn inward, it kind of <coughs> it becomes sweet, or it becomes sad, or it becomes constricted, or it becomes uh, agitated in some exciting in some exciting way, yeah. <coughs> or it becomes listless. Yeah. Just to acknowledge the world this being inhabits and experiences the world from. Channel 4 is the most tricky one because that's where things go fast. That's where the story is. As I said, our attention is not neutral. In in fact, it's highly biased. If we're not learning to settle our attention in Channel 1, in the somatic part of our experience, we will always be in Channel 4. Our mind, our attention will go to the conceptual, to the discursive part of our experience. I will think about my life. I will think about my feelings. I will think about my thoughts. So, orienting ourselves with the help of these, say, four big areas of experience. The Satipatthanas are not just a meditative teaching, they're also um, a model for experience. All of our experience forms part of these four channels. All of our experience have all these four channels. Even a thought has a somatic component. If you hold a thought long enough, you will notice that that thought actually does something to your body. It has a hedonic tone. It will be registering uh, pleasant or unpleasant. Maybe uh, it will register very mildly pleasant or very unpleasant. This channel is something happening in all channels, but we are not aware of this. We are preoccupied with one part. If you're not trained, you will be preoccupied with channel four. That's where I am. I think about me and my life and you people. And obviously that's where we've been trained to go. Now that's not necessarily the place where we have the best chance to understand things or to become happy or to become quiet. So that's why much of meditation traditions have encouraged us basically to learn shifting habitual attentional focus from channel 4 to channel 1. That's what we do when we learn to ground our attention in the body or connect it with the breathing. In terms of that little model, simplistic model, it's basically switching from channel 4 to channel 1. Um, that's probably what you will need to be preoccupied with for quite a bit in your meditation practice because um, we cannot live in channel one, just a sort of uh, being 
engrossed in a sort of grunting immediacy of sensory reality. Yeah? That, that is quite nice. We quite long for this, and it's quite... Uh, yeah, there's something quite sane about this. But unfortunately, complexities in our life don't allow us to stay there. You know, we need to move and learn to enunciate needs and enact impulses and take care of things and people and uh, hold the complexities of our worlds. And we cannot do that just from a, a, a pure, clean feeling in the belly. You know, we need to actually tackle the diversity of, of, of experiences, civilized life brings it along. Even if you live in a monastery and insist on only taking nettle soup, uh, you will not be able to avoid complexities. Monasteries can be very, very complicated places. I've been in one. Jaya has been in one. We, you know, we know that. From outside, they look very peaceful. From inside, they can be looking really busy, yeah. crazy. A circus, basically. People want to be coming in peaceful, but they want to park their cars, they want to rest their heads, they want to bless their babies, they want, you know, and so forth. Many things can happen. So what looks peaceful from the outside, sometimes if you're an inmate, it doesn't look so peaceful. So, acknowledging the diversity of our experience, acknowledging diversity in our realms of experience, sitting down, as we acknowledge posture, as we acknowledge tone and tension, we can acknowledge flavor. Flavor in terms of hedonic tone, what we like and what we do not like, the agreeability, the pleasurability of things. Then, the, the next one, usually immediately followed, following the experience of pleasure or displeasure is mood, is the flavor the affective flavor, my response to what I experience. There's a very neat distinction in Buddhist psychology between liking and actually experiencing (coughs) pleasure. They come the other way around. In Buddhist teaching you experience pleasure and you experience displeasure and that is followed by liking. These two are separate. The experience of pleasure, you don't have much choice in it. Whether you experience something as being pleasant or unpleasant, at the moment of your experience, you do not have a choice in this. It's not something that is about, that is karmically active. Even if you think what you enjoy right now is immoral, it doesn't stop you from enjoying it. You experience it as pleasant. Now, liking is something else. That is when you Uh, consent in some way to it, when you follow along. The experience of pleasure and displeasure is, in Buddhist psychology, a Vedana, and it's karmically, it's a retribution. It's something you get. It's not something you do. Liking is something you do. That's what follows on. That's where things become karmically active. You start engaging with this, with the liking, with the disliking bit, and then you start doing things following it, maintaining it, rejecting it, denying it, and so forth. This stuff starts to build your future. So meditators need to learn to hold some of their experience. Some of that is unraveling in their holding. That alone is enough for some things to unravel and undo. And then they need to learn to engage with 
what is actually wholesome good stuff that is going to build a future. That means the future begins right after the present moment. That's something, uh, forget about rebirth. Rebirth is a complete sideshow. You know, whether there is one or whether there isn't one is, in fact, in my take, quite irrelevant to meditative practice right now. Yeah. The future has begun right now. Yeah. What you're doing right now is going to condition your next few moments. Yeah. The principle of punava, punabava, of re-becoming, is a principle that enacts itself, not just after the physical death of this body, but it enacts itself every, every mind moment, from every mind moment to every mind moment. So, the process of becoming is deeply influenced by our capacity to hold attention and understand what the energies are we're engaged with. It is important for meditators to be able to distinguish a thought from an emotion, from a sensation. There's any moment of our waking experience so much happening it's very confusing and one way to help us is to learn simple dissecting four different areas of our lives not that they can be ultimately separated they cannot i've just said you know you don't get a clean satipat single satipatthana like you don't get if you get an apple you, you don't just get the color or the weight or the flavor or the flesh yeah you get the whole apple. Yeah. While you can talk about its weight or its color or its uh, flavor, but actually, when you get an apple, you get it all. It's all in one piece. You can nominally separate these qualities and talk about them, evaluate them, um, consider the apple ripe or not ripe, um, of a sweet nature or of not a sweet nature. This all makes sense when it comes to deal with apples. But actually, when you get the apple, you get all of it. That's the same with any event in your experience will have all four satipatthanas. It will have a hedonic <laughs> aspect, it will have a bodily aspect, it will have a, an affective aspect, and it will have a cognitive aspect. But for meditative purposes, it makes a lot sense to learn to distinguish the respective value of those four different <coughs> vantage points. For many things, it makes a lot of sense to go to the body aspect, because things are simpler there. Things are more earthy and more grounded. Things are more manageable there. And to some things, our mind responds more powerfully. Our mind responds more powerfully in terms of quietude when we deal with the body than when we deal with thought. So I'm telling you this because it's necessary to have some theoretical background why following your breath with your attention is important. Why this is much more than just a quirky little uh, attentional training, you know, some kind of idea Buddhists condition us into. You know, I just stay with my breath and then everything is fine. No, life is going to be complicated. You know, not everything is fine. Even if you stay with your breath, not everything is fine. Your knee may still hurt, you know, you may still freeze, somebody may still die. But if you have learned to stay with your breath, you have learned to anchor your attention. You have learned to stop being a victim to what psychologists call 
involuntary attentional movement. In other words, an attention that is <coughs> pulled out of you by the dominant sensory impingement. If you don't make the choice where your attention goes, there's a, quite a number of people out there quite happy to make that choice for you. you know, there's some people highly paid and well-trained that are really skilled at getting your attention. Because they know if we get your attention, we will get your money quite soon. By the way, Jaya and I will sell you samadhi pills right at the door. <laughs> so, we need to learn when we have a choice. And to be able to make such a choice, we'll need to discern the terrain a bit. Is this thinking? Is this emotion? Is this body? Is this just liking or not liking? So for today, my suggestion is you refine your anapanasati, your mindfulness of breathing, and I uh, would suggest that you ask some questions there. <clears throat> this is completely non-canonical, so take it with a pinch of salt. These are qualities of breath, because we breathe <coughs> regularly. Um, this is a very mundane experience. Many of us find it difficult to identify different qualities of breath. So one way of identifying qualities of breath that then help us placing our attention more precisely and in more refined ways is just asking after these qualities. Louis Pasteur, biologist who you know is famous for having said in research, nature favors the mind that is prepared. So sometimes when we are prepared in looking for something or being um, receptive to something, we more easily find it can be identified. So what are qualities of breath? An obvious quality of breath is how deep does it go into the body. So one way I can connect more intimately with my breathing process is simply asking how deep is my breath going now? Now let me say that there is no real good place for your breath. Yeah. So there is no right way of breathing. But just to acknowledge how, <clears throat> how deep into this body can I actually feel the sensations connected to my breathing. You'll notice that this changes. Sometimes this will be really deep down in your belly. And sometimes this will be just, you know, up here. Sometimes you'll barely breathe underneath your, um, what are they called, clavicula. Yeah, just kind of, just... A little short, flat breath. Depending on what's happening in your life or how, in what shape your body is, this is... But there will be some specificity to that depth. Yeah. And you will be able to find out where it is right now. So, the first question that helps you becoming more intimate with your breathing process is how deep is this breath allowed to enter this body? Something quite intimate and profound with breathing. We do lots of it. We do it 15 times per minute. We do it from you know birth till death. We um, our minds are capable of holding the whole frequency of a breathing pattern. Um, breathing is a magic function. It's probably the only bodily function that can be 
part of our voluntary nervous system and can equally part of our involuntary nervous system. We can completely control our breathing and yet we can also completely forget about it. Uh, a fact we probably owe our survival to. Uh, and we continue breathing, isn't it? So I don't know any other body functions where I can do that. I completely willfully do it. Hyperventilate, hold my breath, do pranayama, or completely forget about it and it just continues. This is something quite magic about breathing. Every Greek tradition, you know, the Greeks, the Chinese and Japanese, the Indians, and even the Romans have understood there is something connected to the spirit, yeah? to the pneuma, or to the prana, or to the chi, you know, breath. Yeah? It's that which connects body and mind. That's the role it plays in Buddhist psychology and Buddhist meditation. It's, it's almost, you know, it's so unbearably simple, I barely, I, I barely dare telling you, you know. The, the principle on which almost all Buddhist contemplative training hinges on is that that which you place your attention on is going to color with its own quality the mind that receives this experience. In other words, your mind will start to resemble the things you put your attention on and you keep your attention on. So if you put your mind onto something that is rhythmical, that is soothing, that is dynamic, then your mind will start to adapt to that rhythm. It will start to adapt to the volume of that experience. And because it's dynamic, it will be if it wants to follow that experience, it will be needed that it adapts its capacity to attend to the decrease in sensation. And that little stimulus makes the stillness grow. So in other words, if I place my mind with the help of my attention onto something that is loud, exciting, erratic, my mind will become that. It will become loud, it will become excited, and it will be, it'll do really uh, fast and, and maybe violent movements. Yeah. If I put my mind onto something soft and rhythmical and, and sublime, then my mind will start to resemble that quality. Yeah. So that's why uh, probably many Buddhist meditation traditions have settled on the breath, because it's relatively subtle, if the body is still, then the breath becomes still. If uh, we attend <coughs> to that breath becoming still in, in refined ways, then the refinement that is happening in the sensations of breathing will transmit themselves to the quality of our mind. Yeah. So the minds will become soft and still and receptive. This is very simple, isn't it? It's easily said. It's important to know that this principle holds, even though it doesn't, may not always feel that way. So the skilled meditator is not one who is never agitated or anxious or excited or uh, holding complexity. The skilled meditator is somebody who is capable of meeting his or her mind wherever it is at and taking it from there to greater calm. Sometimes that may be from completely frantic to a marginally less frantic. Yeah? And sometimes that may be from deeply still to a profound 
stabilized uh, absorption. Irrespective of where you find yourself on this spectrum, and even if you have skill in that, you will not always remain at that place. Your skill is to know how to modulate it from where you meet it. So rather than complain that your mind does not do what you expect it to do when you come and retreat, you learn just to meet it where it is and take it from there, the next step. So let's go to the next quality. We had depth as the first quality. The next obvious quality of your breath is its rhythm. Very simple. It's taken me about ten years to find out that I don't breathe out in equal length. Yeah? embarrassing. Here you are, a meditator, professional contemplative, and it takes you ten years to find out that actually your in and your out-breath are of not equal length. Yeah. There's little revelations in monastic life, you know, you find out suddenly. Actually breathing it more through one nostril than through the other, which nobody ever told me. But suddenly you find that out. I'm telling you this for free, yeah? so no price tag. Just Acknowledging the rhythm that is constituted by an in-breath, a pause, and an out-breath, and a pause. Just acknowledging that rhythm, asking for that rhythm, getting in touch with the rhythm of your breathing is one question that may make you more intimately connected to your experience of breathing. So we have depth, we have rhythm, then we have the third one is the tone of your breath. How much vitality is in your breath? How much is it flaccid? Or is it, you know, does it have buoyancy? Sometimes it feels like I'm kind of being breathed, you know. This is wonderful. The universe is just breathing me here, sitting on my little cushion. Sometimes it feels like, ah, you know, it's hard work. Or it's, it's not really vital. It's not really alive. Depending on my mood or depending on my physical state. But I can definitely get in touch with the degree, the tone that inhabits my breathing pattern. The vitality that is in there. That's a fairly distinct quality which I can uh, find out. And when I find it out, I can in some way be more close to that breathing experience. The fourth one would be something like texture. Now, if you have an in-breath, is this a silky, smooth experience? Or is this a jagged experience? Yeah? Is this something rasping there? When you breathe in, is this a kind of... Um, is this a cat fur experience? Or is this more like uh, you know, touching a concrete tube? Yeah. There's different granularity to our... Uh, to the texture in, in which we breathe in. Maybe it's really silky smooth and then there's a huge jag at the end yeah, on the out-breath, something rasping, something. Just notice. Um, the movement, this breath is a movement. Is this movement smooth? Is it Jacket? Is it horse? Is it rasping? Or is it something in between? So texture would be a quality of breathing. And finally, the last one is how much resistance does this body offer <coughs> to the breathing pattern? 
there is a tension in the body, there is, you know, intracostal muscles, there is a rib cage, there are tissues. So sometimes it feels that flows into me beautifully, and sometimes it feels there is quite a bit of resistance. I have to suck, and I have to pump, and I have to suck, and I have to pump. So I can gauge the degree of resistance that this body offers toward the breathing movement. Now, what I'd like you to do not to perpetually investigate this with the question marks yeah, and a tick list. What I'd like you to do is to try those few questions and see whether the question opens a space of awareness at the end of it that brings you closer to your breath. The important part is not your answer. The important part is the gap that opens up after every genuine question. Every genuine question takes you into a deeper relationship with what you are inquiring after. And even though the question may be answered, the important part is you becoming more intimate with your experience of breathing. When you become more intimate, it becomes more easy to stabilize your attention. Your breath has two jobs. One of them is to make your mind more calm. The other one is to tell you something about your life. That's why breath is not just a samatha object that helps you stabilize and quieten the mind. It is also something that tells you something about you and how you live and how your life and how your body unfolds. All this is mirrored in your breath, breathing. Your breathing will tell you something about what's happening in your life. So, use these five questions. Use one of them. Don't, uh, if they don't work for you, forget them. If one of them works for you, remember and put it to use. Remember, the point is to get closer to your breathing so that you can attend more seamlessly, more continually to the intimacy of your breathing sensations. That's the purpose. And for the rest, you remember plan B. When you notice you're doing something else, you come back. When you're sleepy, um, there's tricks. You raise your arms, you open your eyes, you stand up, you deepen your in-breath. Visualize the color of white. Hold your breath for a moment till your, till your survival reflexes kick in and galvanize you back into action. Don't just wait till it stops and goes away. Yeah. Don't go into some kind of childish um, observing pose, hoping you would be spared this cup and it would be taken away from you by you just teeth-grittingly wait. So much mindfulness practice is taught as a, as a passive observing quality, you know. Just go there, observe and hope it stops. But if I look at Buddhist teaching, it doesn't actually say that. It says go in there, feel, be aware, connect, meet, do something, intervene, get in touch, investigate, hold. <laughs> so much of that is is an active encouragement. It's a relationship. And you know in relationships, this, it's not one thing that's always appropriate. You know? Sometimes tickling is appropriate and sometimes it's not. You know? Sometimes hugging is appropriate and sometimes it's not. Sometimes respectful distance is appropriate and sometimes it's not. Sometimes inquiry is just the right thing and sometimes it's the wrong thing. We know that. So let us relate more intelligently to 
in the process of our experience with the help of mindfulness. Good. Thank you for your attention. Let's practice.